Mira, yo para mí todo... Siempre, siempre el conseguir tierra ha sido un, un producto aquí muy difícil. En parte porque no creen en uno. ¿verdad? Te ven diferente y ellos creen que tú... Pues, a veces yo pienso que, que, que uno piensa que uno no piensa igual que ellos, que piensas menos. That's farmer Florentino Collazo, a small vegetable grower in the Salinas area. He explained trying to get land in Monterey County has been difficult. Partly because lots of people don't believe in us. They see us as different and they suddenly think that we don't think like them. La, la tierra está en manos de muy pocas gentes. Entonces los espacios pequeños son muy cotizados y los han ido encareciendo. En primer lugar están caros. Otro es que lo que nosotros queremos crecer a veces nada más nos dejan terrenos que ellos ya no usan, que los dejaron muy llenos de sal y todo. Florentino went on. Unfortunately, the current lands at this point are in the hands of very few people. So, the small parcels currently available are the ones going for a higher price. So as a small farmer, it's exceedingly expensive. Another reason is that the only spots that are available are lands that are less desirable and that have high levels of salt and are difficult to work on with the crops wanting to grow. Farmers of color often feel that they work in the shadows of society in isolated fields that are out of sight and out of mind for most people in the state. Their jobs as farmers feed souls, fill hearts, and spread joy. Their work nourishes the state with fresh fruits, vegetables, and other crops that they plant, pick, and pack day in and day out. And yet, over and over again in California history, they have been denied the most basic things that farmers need. Land. In 2017, a group of powerful justice organizers came together to use a smart political strategy to pass groundbreaking legislation designed to address a long history of racist policies that have limited the possibilities of farmers of color from owning land in California. This law, the Farmer Equity Act, also known as AB 1348, has the potential to radically transform how agricultural institutions serve the next generation of farmers of color. So are we poised to see a big change for farmers of color? That's a question I'm really interested in answering. Hola. I'm Hector Luis Calderón Victoria, and this is the Calag Roots podcast about California's agriculture industry and policy in the state. Calag Roots is unearthing stories about important moments in the history of California farming to shed some light on current issues in agriculture. We're focusing on stories that bring to light the issues around California farmers in different regions. Check it out at agroots.org. I was guided as I produced this story by two powerful quotes from civil rights leaders. James Baldwin said, history as nearly no one seems to know is not merely something to be read, and it does not refer merely or even principally to the past. On the contrary, the great forces of history comes from the fact that we carry it within us, are unconsciously controlled by it in many ways, and history is literally present in all that we do. And Malcolm X observed, 
Land is the basis of all independence and the basis for freedom, justice, and equity. My name is Jabril Kaiser. Uh, I'm a grassroots science fellow at the Pesticide Action Network. For Jabril Kaiser, a young farmer in Oakland, history is definitely present in the way that he farms. So we just started farming and realizing that access to land is the true liberation and true freedom. I mean, it's super important for us to have access to land, long-term access to land, maybe generational access, long-term generational access to land, because land is power. Land is the ability to be self-determining. Land is the ability to grow our own food. Land is the ability to control our own housing situation. This entire economic system is based off land. This land was stolen from the indigenous people hundreds of years ago and then privatized and sold off by the government. So like this whole economic system is based on the privatization of land. If we don't have a stake in the economic system, right, there's going to be no way that we can dismantle it. So the, the biggest thing that's keeping us from accessing land is the cost, right? So a lot of these, a lot of the land is in, incredibly expensive and is requiring us to rely on this privatized land owning system where we take out loans from a bank or uh, from some sort of institution that provides farm loans. The history of exclusion from land is particularly a big problem for Jabril and for other farmers of color across the state. I talked to an instructor at one of the state's longest running farmer apprenticeship programs to dive deep into this history. And just a heads up, we are going to cover a lot here. My name is Kelly Matsushita Sang. I am a fourth generation Yonsei, so fourth generation Japanese uh, Chinese farmer. Uh, I'm a seed sovereignty educator and land worker. It's important to say that land ownership itself is a colonial concept and the idea that land is property. Land ownership in the U.S. is all built on stealing land from indigenous tribes and nations. And this is something the agriculture industry has not yet fully recognized. And we have to just mention that in this area, uh, specifically, indigenous communities were excluded through land access through systematic removal, displacement, and genocide and violation of treaties and literal refusement of the government to recognize tribes in this area. There have been both moments of intentional exclusion in terms of keeping farmers of color off land when land was specifically made accessible to white people. Currently, the National Park Service estimates that a quarter of the U.S. population actually descended from people that received land through the Homestead Act. And the Homestead Act uh, was when people with $10 could receive up to 160 acres of land. And this was originally used to displace indigenous people off, quote, unused land. This was followed later on by the 1887 Dawes Act, which divided tribal land, a lot of which was sold to white farmers. This pattern of intentional exclusion continued as new groups of immigrants came to California. 
The Chinese community built the railroads, and railroads were the first way that produce from California was able to move long distances and bring in significant income that way. A lot of Chinese immigrants who came to California were from the Pearl River Delta, and they were core in shaping the landscape of the Sacramento River Delta. They actually hand dug waterways over 80,000 acres of marshlands and flood zones, therefore creating the really lush agricultural region of the Sacramento River Delta. Despite providing critical knowledge and labor that produced some of the most productive agricultural lands in the state, Chinese laborers were the first immigrant group to experience what in effect was the first immigrant ban in the U.S. In 1882, we saw the Chinese Exclusion Act. This act made Chinese immigration to the U.S. illegal and contributed to the decline of Chinese agricultural labor from 60 to 90 percent of the total agricultural workers in 1882 down to 20% of the total agricultural workers less than a decade after its passage. And that wasn't the only discriminatory legislation. By 1880, seven out of eight farm workers were Chinese. However, um, with the Alien Land Act in 1913, the California Land Law of 1913 prohibited aliens ineligible for citizenship from owning agricultural lands and permitted leases that only lasted up to three years. Chinese farmers were essentially banned from owning property in California, which resulted in them not being able to move up to being farm owners and really only being able to be farm laborers, even though they built one of the world's most lucrative agricultural regions. The Alien Land Law Act applied to Chinese, Korean, Japanese, and Indian farmers. These farmers tried to work around the Alien Land Law, using tactics such as purchasing land through their children who had become naturalized citizens. On top of the Alien Land Law, Japanese farmers faced increasing discrimination as they became more economically successful in California. So following Chinese labor, the Japanese community were growing up to 40% of the produce in California by 1940. And so their expertise in specialized fruits and vegetables really expanded California's agricultural uh, production in that way. After Japanese laborers made up the bulk of labor, there was another wave of Filipino immigrants and in the 1930s, the Filipino community was also experiencing huge amounts of racism. Um, in the 1930s, in 1930, there was actually a, a mob in Watsonville uh, that beat and killed um, dozens of Filipino men who were farm workers. Then, with the 1920 update to the Alien Land Law, what happened after the update to the Alien Land Law Acts in 1920, the percent of Japanese farms fell 32 percent between 1920 and 1940, and the acreage that was farmed fell in half. So in 
1940, we're at this moment where about 75% of black farmers and Japanese-American farmers are tenant farmers. So they're not actually owning land, but they are farming. And then in 1940, on the eve of World War II, or just before World War II, Japanese-American farmers grew nearly 40% of the produce in California. And 43% of the Japanese second-generation folks were employed in agriculture. However, with the announcement of Executive Order 9066, farmers abandoned their crops, there were $22 million of produce left in the land, and farmers were never compensated for this. On February 19, 1942, Executive Order 9066 mandated over 100,000 people of Japanese descent to leave behind their homes, farms, and livelihoods for internment camps. As Japanese farmers were being disenfranchised, African-American farmers also experienced discriminatory practices that persisted well into the 20th century. African-American farming communities in California faced the same racist policies and practices in other parts of the country. Um, farming communities faced redlining and so therefore were kind of these resources were not given to those communities and also there were also communities in California that were considered sundown towns people of color black folks actually couldn't be in those towns after dark it was illegal and it's kind of wild that it wasn't until 1963 that the California Fair Housing Act was passed to end discrimination by property owners who refused to sell or rent to African Americans. So these things really do impact the legacy of ownership and land access in California. With this long history of land dispossession and discrimination, we've talked to some people who are working now to address these injustices. My name is Janaki Anaga, and I'm a founding member of the California Farmer Justice Collaborative, and I'm currently a program manager at the 11th Hour Project's Food and Agriculture Program. The California Farmer Justice Collaborative was formed in the end of 2016, um, in early part of 2017 as a response to a growing concern that there was a lack of representation for farmers of color in major areas of environmental decision making, specifically around um, climate change related programs that were being formed at the California Department of Food and Agriculture. The California Farmer Justice Collaborative wants to ensure that farmers of color are empowered to directly participate and effectively lead a movement to build a fair food and farming system in California. This kind of cross-ethnic, cross-racial, cross-cultural coalition formed not just to pass the Farmer Equity Act, but really to have this broader conversation about ways to fill that big gap that we were witnessing at the time. So the issue of land access is one that has been at the core of uh, the 
California Farmer Justice Collaborative's efforts for a while, I would say, has typically risen to the surface of every conversation we have, whether it's a policy one or an organizational development one, because access to land is the access to farm, right? And when we talk about the dispossession of lands, that's just a nicer way of saying lands that were stolen from Native people and, um, you know, the processes of slavery and genocide resulting in a reality now that I want to say in the 2017 census that over 97% of farmlands in the United States are held by white people alone. So they decided to do something about it. They quickly realized they needed a policy tool for doing this. So they crafted a bill that was originally thought of as a kind of civil rights bill that essentially focused on farmers of color in California. This bill, AB 1348, was called the Farmer Equity Act. On October 9th, 2017, the Farmer Equity Act was passed with historic policy language that acknowledges for the first time in California that, quote, farmers of color have historically not had equitable access to land and other resources necessary to conduct farming in California and that legacy of prejudice persists. I believe that the reason why the group decided ultimately to advance a piece of legislation as opposed to, of course, the many other ways that this need needs to be addressed uh, at the time was really because the Farmer Equity Act changes the California Food and Agriculture Code to add a definition of socially disadvantaged farmer and rancher. There are some ways that even the language of the bill is distorted by the legacy of discrimination. In the 1990 Farm Bill, the USDA defined the term socially disadvantaged farmers and ranchers to provide better outreach and assistance to underserved farmers and ranchers, including farmers of color, women, and veterans. When writing the bill, members of the California Farmer Justice Collaborative had initially hoped to use the word farmers of color instead of using socially disadvantaged farmers and ranchers. But in order to receive federal funding, the bill would need to use a federal term that categorized these farmers as disadvantaged. The terms are dictated by government agencies instead of farmers themselves. That change allows for future legislatures and our agencies to have a definition that they can draw from in order to set aside funds, uh, earmark funds from our annual budget that gets passed for the state that's funded from taxpayer dollars, and also to recognize, you know, in law, the reality that farmers of color have disproportionately uh, faced an injustice when it comes to access to basic uh, means to farm, access to land, access to capital, access to water and technical assistance, and the means to advance their farm businesses. One of the first things that the Farmer Equity Act required was that the California Department of Food and Agriculture hire a farm equity advisor. Thea Rittenhouse was that person. In 2020, Thea handed over a comprehensive report due to the legislator that is now available on the California Department of Food and Agriculture Farm Equity webpage. Janaki explains more. 
what makes this a really important piece of legislation beyond the fact, uh, as I mentioned, of having this definition carved out in the California Food and Agriculture Code is that as a part of this law, CDFA was meant to conduct an evaluation of its own boards, committees, and commissions within the department to identify like what basically what percentage of these different boards and commissions are white folks and what percentage are folks of color. And as many of us know, the Department of Food and Agriculture really uh, has boards and commissions related to practically every part of agricultural development in the state. There's an apiary board, that's bees for those folks who don't know. There's um, nursery, there's eggs, there's dairy, there's cannabis, there's you name it. I mean, every part of kind of the agricultural system has uh, a sort of section within the department. And upon the publication of this recent report in 2020, CDFA basically announced to the world that a vast majority of these commissions are white and that they've just been historically accessed only by white growers. While this was a historic admission by the California Department of Food and Agriculture, Jonaki questions how far this acknowledgement can go to actually benefit farmers of color. In this case, you know, there's an ongoing question of is there and can there ever be a true end to discrimination when agriculture itself is built upon this legacy of slavery and genocide in the United States and that the USDA and subsequently the Department of Food and Agriculture created only 100 years ago, can they truly ever look inward to dismantle those systems of of racism when the foundations of our industry um, are, are so sordid? A complete overhaul of this system cannot ever be achieved just by passing a state rule that acknowledges racism. Simply acknowledging racism is something at the end of the day that's really only useful for white folks because the rest of us know that that's the reality, right? We don't need a law to tell us that. But what the Farmer Equity Act has done has just placed into the California Food and Agriculture Code a general acknowledgement about that and then subsequently the opportunity for our majority white legislature, our majority white agencies to take stock of those histories and um, make amends as they see fit, not necessarily as we see fit. So uh, taking account of that, those limitations are, it's very important when advancing the implementation of this law. The California Farmer Justice Collaborative and other farmer justice groups in California continue to further the work of racial justice in agriculture. The Farmer Equity Act, which has now been around for four years, has shown them that what is really needed for land reform will take more than just one bill. So our pursuit of the Farmer Equity Act in some ways was fundamental uh, and also a, a critique that we, that we received was that it didn't go far enough. That's Mai Nguyen. They are another founding member of the California Farmer Justice Collaborative who worked on the Farmer Equity Act. My name is Mai Nguyen. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and my affiliations are, well, I'm a 
independent farm owner operator running my business under the name Farmer Mai. And I'm also the co-director of Minnow, which is a California-based organization focused on securing farmland tenure for California's farmers of color, uh, while also advancing indigenous sovereignty. Mai identifies some of the challenges organizers faced while working on the Farmer Equity Act. The challenges that we faced included having this kind of common ground around advancing a definition and that seeming just narrow and uh, not progressive enough. We had some urban farmers who are representing in the collaborative, but we didn't do enough, I think, to have more rural representation or people who were really farming full-time and having processes of accountability with people who really couldn't always participate in these brainstorming sessions and discussions and, and meetings that happened in the middle of the day. We also didn't have representation of Indigenous peoples, federally recognized or not, that was completely lacking. And I think that got in the way of us having this expansive vision of what the act could have been. Um, and also having the lack of that kind of deep engagement by the people most affected by this act, I think also has hindered our ability to move beyond this act and have a suite of policies that really advance equity. Because uh, ultimately, having a definition or recognizing that we exist is not equity. It's not necessarily a, a major shift in power. It's a step. But I think that in the collaborative process, by having more people who are deeply affected by this act um, to push for a stronger system of community-based grassroots accountability has limited its the efficacy of this act um, in its implementation, as well as being able to build upon it for, for really advancing equity. Mai suggests that what is essential for advancing equity within grassroots movement organizing is having broader representation and participation from BIPOC farmers. And when it comes to advancing equity in a governmental structure, the passage of one farmer justice bill is not enough to truly address the deeper shifts that are needed for equitable land ownership. I think the Farmer Equity Act could help farmers, BIPOC farmers with land access, but it hasn't. I haven't seen, say, the Department of Conservation have a farmer advisory committee solely comprised of BIPOC that really have a strong influence over their programs. There's opportunities for these existing divisions that manage our lands to, to meaningfully include BIPOC in decision-making. Uh, and they, they haven't really stepped into that. And even with the California Department of Food and Agriculture, it wasn't until four years after its passage did they create a farmer advisory committee with BIPOC. In other words, the Farmer Equity Act did not make government processes and decision-making inherently more inclusive of BIPOC farmers. We have to recognize that land isn't just about one policy and one signature. Land transfer 
And land is such a critical part of the American idea of itself, of what you can hold and gain. And there's blood, sweat, and tears, and money (laughs) associated with it. And so we need to actually consider a whole suite of policies and societal shifts in thinking in order for us to have real land justice. Equity is not simply about policies, but it's actually about a transformation in our society in terms of who we think has power and who we will share power with. Ultimately, equitable land access is just part of the vision for change here. What's needed is no less than a radical transformation of the entire U.S. food system to one, value the people who tend the land and cultivate food we eat on a daily basis because without them, there is no us. Making sure that farmers can put down literal and figurative roots on lands that they are tending is a huge first step in the right direction. Rectifying racism in California agriculture is not going to happen overnight. It didn't happen by just passing the Farmer Equity Act. It's going to be an ongoing process for all of us to participate in. But the terms of that must be defined by growers of color. As farmer Florentino Collazo put it to me, el mejor fertilizante para el suelo, lo que cultivamos, is la sombra del agricultor. The best fertilizer for the soil we cultivate is the farmer's shadow. Thanks for listening to the CalAg Roots podcast. If you liked what you heard, you can check out other stories like this one at www.agroots.org or on Apple Podcasts if you subscribe to this podcast. And by the way, if you rate the CalAg Roots podcast, it will help other people discover it. This story was produced by the California Institute for Rural Studies, and I'm Hector Luis Calderon Victoria. Special thanks to the team of CalAg Root producers, Caroline Collins, Lee Schmidt, and Ildi Carlisle Cummins for editing and production help. Big thanks go out to everyone whose voices you heard here. Florentino Collazo, Jabril Kaiser, Kelly Mashushita Sang, Janaki Anaga, and Mai Nguyen. Along with the many of the contributors to the California Farmer Justice Collaborative and the Farmer Equity Act, Brandy Mack, Gail Myers, Kanoke Israel, Neil Thopper, Beth Smoker, Michael Harris, Ellie Egu, and many other key figures. All of these individuals represent different geographies around California and different areas of concern in the agriculture business sector. The music for our podcast was by Las Cafeteras, and the Calag Roots theme music is by Nangdo. Finally, this Calag Roots podcast was made possible with the support from the 11th Hour Project at the Schmidt Family Foundation.